Our world is very different than it was just a couple of months ago. And honestly, we are struggling to accept and wrap our minds around and adjust to all the ways these differences are affecting us. For example, what we're doing right now is very different. We're gathering in our homes and watching this on our TVs rather than in this room. I thought you might want to see what it looks like from my perspective whenever I speak. I'm in this auditorium, it's empty, there's no chairs, I'm talking to a camera. And whenever we're able to get back together again in this place, there are some things that are going to be different. You may have noticed we've removed the carpet and polished the, the concrete on these floors. And that's because it's going to help us provide a more sanitary environment when we get back. And so like every organization in America, we're thinking through what needs to be different even after the virus. Now, some people welcome and are energized by difference, by change. But for most of us, difference is a pretty unwelcome intruder on what it is that we expected to happen. There is, however, one kind of difference that I think everyone would agree with, and that is personal difference. We would all like to be different in some way. Now, we may not be willing to admit that, but down deep inside, we all wish we could change at least something about us. Now, God shares the desire that we have for us to change. He's always doing something to convince us to change and to grow, to be different. Now, God won't just magically make us different without our consent and without our participation. And that's because God created us to be free. So what he does in order to often motivate us to put in the effort that's required to be different on the inside is he invades our outside world with change, with difference. If little or nothing changes in the circumstances of our life, we'll have no reason to put in the hard work to grow and be different. That's why God often disrupts our outside world so that we might begin to change on the inside. Now, usually this disruption is an individually timed and kind of a custom event. But for us right now, there is this global disruption. And it's really as if God is saying to everyone, please stop and take a good look at your life. Are you absolutely sure that you are on track and that you're living for the things that really matter and have value? Now, we've been hoping, I've been hoping that maybe this would be just kind of an interruption to our life. An interruption means you, you do something different, it's a pause, it's a break, and then you get back to things the way you did before. You get back to normal life. But everyone's talking, of course, now about the new normal. And that's because this is not an interruption event that we've been experiencing. This is a disruption kind of event. And what that means is some things will never be the same on the other side of this experience. But the new normal that God is most interested in is not our future virus response, but in how we view life and what we value. That's the new normal that God is most interested in. We need to be different, not just because there are invisible and deadly viruses out there, but because there are invisible and deadly ideas out there. In the New Testament book of 1 Peter, Peter writes to Christians who are experiencing both the pain of being different as Christians and the struggle to become different. And the purpose of this book, the book of 1 Peter, is to explain why they should be different and how they can cooperate with God in the way he is changing them, his ongoing effort to make them different. And so I think this book is a perfect guide for us in this disruptive season that brings with it an unprecedented opportunity, I think, for us to be different. Now, the book of 1 Peter starts 
by explaining how it is that we change. It begins, first of all, by talking about where change begins and then how change continues. So let's look at the first item. Change begins on the inside of us, not on the outside of us. I want you to think of a time when you tried to change something in your life. You got really tired of something about you and you decided, all right, I'm going to change. And you probably came up with a plan that involved a set of activities that were designed to bring about the change that you wanted to make. Maybe you read these ideas in a book or you heard someone talk about these ideas. Uh, They promised to bring about the change that you wanted. And so you started out on this change project. You started out on day one with probably a high level of excitement and a high level of commitment. And then what happened? Well, the long-standing behaviors of your life didn't just lie down and go away because you were motivated to change. They probably put up a fight against all of these new behaviors, these new changes that you were trying to make. And this fight to be different probably went on day after day after day. And over time, the excitement that you had initially about the possibility of change was replaced with just the sheer hard work and probably the discouragement of how hard it was to change. And you probably began to wonder at some point whether you got a hold of the wrong list and it wasn't working the way it said in the book or the way you heard the person talk about it. And it seemed easy when you read about it, but it was not easy. So eventually you maybe changed your change goal or maybe you just gave up altogether. And then the next time you hear of a great change plan, well, you were probably a little less hopeful and a little less excited. And usually after about four or five rounds of these these kinds of change plans and their efforts, we tend to abandon the effort to really be different and change. Now, the reason this occurs is because the power to change is located not on the outside of us in a set of behaviors. It's located on the inside. But what tends to happen, instead of looking on the inside for what needs to change, we keep focusing our attention on the outside. When our personal change projects fail, We tend to shift from what's wrong with us and how we might change to what's wrong with something out there, something in our world that that needs to change. Now, we still, of course, want to be different, but since that has proved to be challenging and maybe even impossible, we decide that the key to change is in the circumstances around us, not in our own efforts. For example, we think, well, if our spouse would just change, then, then I wouldn't be so angry. Or if the government would just finally get their act together, then I wouldn't be so afraid of of the future and what's coming. Or if my boss wasn't so difficult to work with, then I wouldn't have so much stress on the job. Or if this stay-at-home order is finally lifted and everything goes back to the way it was, then, then if that happens, then I can finally get control of my anxiety. But if you talk to those who live with us or who are married to us, you would find that we are almost always angry or stressed or bitter or lazy or anxious, no matter what the circumstances are. And that's because that's who we are on the inside. The direction to true, long-lasting change occurs inside out, not vice versa, not outside in. What that means is we cannot perform our way into being different with external behaviors. And we can't blame our external circumstances on the way we are. Who we are comes from deep inside of us. And if we're going to be different, it needs to start on the inside and move out, not 
from the outside and move in. So how does this occur? Well, this is what we read at the beginning of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it says, in his great mercy, God gives us a new birth. Our original birth gave us the life that we are now living, the life that we are now trying to change in some way, because, well, we're not living that life the way we know we should live that life. Now, this new birth, this new life, comes from God the Father and is delivered to us by Jesus Christ. That's why we praise or we thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's where this new life comes from. Now, every child is born into two things. And these verses talk about the two things that every child is born into. The key word is into. They are born into a hope, and they are born into an inheritance. Hope points to the potential of that new life. Inheritance points to the resources of the particular family that this child is being born into. So let's consider the hope part first. I can't think of a more hope-filled moment than the birth of a child. I remember when our two children were born, I just kept staring at them and wondering and imagining what they might become. And at that point, at the beginning of life, the sky is the limit, really, of what they might become. I just imagined all the possibilities, and everything was pretty much possible at that time. But as life goes on, the possibilities begin to narrow. And some of them begin to close, and some of them are no longer possible. Those hopes that were possible early on are no longer possible. They die. For example, our two kids are both now in their 30s. So the hope of them becoming a professional athlete, it's pretty much gone. That hope has died. When they were only a month old, you could look at them and say, you never know, maybe they could become a professional athlete. It was possible. But as time goes on, that window closes and that hope dies. Now, the hope that comes from God, the life that comes from God, is a, is a hope that's different than the kinds of hope that comes from the way we are when we are initially born. It's different in that it is a living hope, not a dying hope. Every hope in this world is a dying hope. Every child that is born eventually is going to die. And every hope that we have for that child is eventually going to end. These hopes, the hopes in this life, have a lifespan to them. What that means is they, they rise, the expectations rise, and, and then they fall, and then they die, and then they end. That's a dying kind of hope. The hope of being different, the hope of change, is one of those dying kinds of hopes. It has this angle to it. it we think we can change, and, and then it looks like we can't change. We all get to the point in some area of our life where we lose hope that we're ever going to change. We give up. The hope of change dies. But the living hope from God follows a different template than the normal kind of life that we experience. It follows the template of the one who gives this new life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
the trajectory of this hope is death to life. It doesn't just arc and then die. It starts out with death like a, like a resurrection and ends up in life. It's an upward slope. What that means is no matter how bad things look in this change project that God is beginning in us, there's always reason for hope. Because this hope, this new living hope, is rooted in the great mercy of God. Now, the word great here is a Greek word in the New Testament, and what it means is it's the Greek word for many. The greatness of God's mercy is not in the size of his mercy, it's in the number of his mercy. Now, that is great for us, because we don't just need one merciful event. We don't just need God's mercy once or maybe even a hundred times. We need the mercy of God again and again and again, because we keep failing, and we keep struggling, and we keep sinning. So if there is no limit to God's mercy, if it is in, va- in fact great mercy, many mercies, then this hope doesn't die. Now, the inheritance part that we are born into in this new life, the inheritance part of birth always points to the resources of the family that you're born into. Usually, you take possession of these resources, this inheritance, when the relative who owns them dies. But in this case, the death that triggered the release of these resources is the death of Jesus Christ. So now, if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, what that means is we have been born into his family. We are part of the family, and therefore we have access to that inheritance. Now, unlike every other inheritance, This inheritance does not, as it says, perish, spoil, or fade. In other words, it doesn't decline. The balance never goes down in this inheritance because the resources of this inheritance are not in the banks of this world or the stock markets of this world or the, the real estate of this world. No, this inheritance is kept for us in heaven. So it doesn't decline. It doesn't perish, spoil, or fade. The problem, though, is we're not in heaven. So how do we access this amazing inheritance in heaven while we're still here on earth? Well, here's what it says. This is made available to us through faith. Through faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it's going to be great to get to heaven and experience the salvation of God with our own eyes. But until then, between now and that moment, We put our faith in God's mercy. We put our faith in God's goodness and his plan. And we keep moving forward no matter how bad it looks right now. And as we do that, what happens is the inheritance of heaven shows up in our lives as God's shield of power, his help. It's an invisible shield, but it's very real. We are protected from more evil than we know. And we are helped in ways that sometimes we can see and we get a sense of God's help, and many times we have no idea how much we've been helped. This is why we can be different. So let me summarize again what this new life represents. Change begins when a new kind of life, the kind of life that God gives, is birthed in us on the inside, the life from Jesus Christ. Now, it is a resurrecting kind of life, not a dying kind of life. It is a life that is kept alive, not by our great efforts, but by God's great mercy. It is a life funded by the resources of heaven and transferred to us daily 
by the invisible shield of God's power that keeps saving us and keeps coming to our rescue and keeps forgiving us. Now, without this new life from God on the inside, really not much can change truly in our lives. I mean, we can change our circumstances. We can move. We can remarry. We can change jobs. But who we are is going to remain pretty much the same. We can maybe put on a new coat of paint. We can kind of change the way people perceive us and project ourselves a little different. But eventually, the cracks of who we really are on the inside are going to make its way through the paint and the plaster, and we're going to be seen for who we really are. So if we want to be different, it starts with a different inside, a new kind of life on the inside. But secondly, change then continues by faith. It continues by faith. And this is important because change is a long-term project that requires faith to see it through. Here's what we read in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 6 through 7, the next set of verses. It says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? I mean, there are better and worse weeks and better or and worse years. This is a particularly hard year. I mean, maybe you had a, a hard family life growing up. Maybe you had a hard time in school. Maybe you had a hard time finding your place in this world. Maybe a hard time making friends. Maybe you had a hard time getting and keeping a good job or a hard time finding a good person to marry or a hard time finding happiness in that marriage. Maybe you're facing something hard right now with your health or the health of someone that you love. And of course, we're, we all have faced to some degree and will face the hardest of all hards, and that is death. That's the hardest thing. So why? Why is life so hard? Well, this is what it says in these verses that we just read. We are told why these trials have come. It's so that, that's the key word, so, two words, so that. So that, why? Your faith. It's all about our faith. This is the why behind the trials, the why behind the hard stuff. So name your trial and then ask, why is this happening to me? The big answer is always the same, your faith. Why did you lose your job? So that your faith. Why is your marriage so hard? So that your faith. Why are your kids so challenging right now? It's so that your faith. Why did God allow COVID-19 to invade our lives? It's so that our faith. So that our faith what? Goes on to say, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So when Jesus is revealed, when he comes to wrap up history, in the end, the only thing of value at that point will be the quality and the quantity of our faith. So that is God's top priority. That's his primary concern, is developing our faith. So how can you know and how do you develop the quality and the quantity of faith? Well, it's pretty similar to gold in many ways. Faith is tested the same way gold is, by fire. Gold and faith share three common traits, which is why they are compared to each other in these verses that we just read. 
Here are the three common traits. First of all, both need to be valued. Both gold and faith represent value or worth. It says your faith of greater worth than gold. So what's even more valuable than gold is faith, which is pretty amazing because throughout history, gold has been the leading standard of what something is worth in this world. We, in fact, call it the gold standard, the the measurement of value, the measurement of worth. Now, our dollars in this country used to be backed up by gold. Now, that ended in 1971 when we decided that we didn't want the number of dollars that we could print to be limited by the amount of gold that we had on reserve. So now in this world, really the U.S. dollar has kind of become the leading standard of value. But most countries still hold significant reserves of gold. And in times of crisis, people still buy gold. But according to God, faith is the real standard of what's valuable in this life. And so while most people in this world are doing everything they can to increase their net worth, God points to our net faith and says, that's what needs to get your attention because that's what has God's attention. Now, faith, kind of like gold, isn't just lying around on the ground waiting for us to see it and pick it up and put it in our pockets and possess it. No, gold has to be mined. Tunnels have to be dug for the gold to be found. And that's a lot of work. That's hard. So the hard stuff in life are really kind of like the tunnels that are needed to get at and mine the gold of faith. If you were to ask a a miner, what's with all the mess? What's with all the tunnels? Why are you making such a mess here? He would point to the gold and say that that's the only way I can get gold is by digging the tunnels. You would ask God the same thing. God, what's with all the hard stuff? What's with with all the, the mess that's going on in my life? And he'll point to your faith and say that's the only way that faith is going to happen. So no tunnels, no gold. No trials, no faith. They go together. The second way that gold and faith are similar is that both need to be refined. Both need to be refined. It says again, your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So gold will perish eventually. But like faith, both gold and faith need to be refined by fire. So gold comes out of the ground mixed. It's got all kinds of impurities that need to be separated from the gold in order for it to be pure and be valuable. Intense heat or fire is the common way to purify gold. As the gold is heated, the impurities rise to the top, they bubble to the top, and they form dross that can be then scraped or removed from the top of the gold, and the pure gold then remains. And it's the same kind of thing that happens with our faith. Our faith is mixed. Our faith isn't pure. No one's faith is pure. In other words, we have faith in God to some degree, and then we have faith in our money to another degree, and we have faith in our plans to another degree, and we have faith in this and that, and and the list goes on of all the things that we have confidence and faith in. So we've got this pie of all kinds of pieces of faith. So which one is the top faith of the total faith pie? And how much of the total faith that we have is really faith in God and how much is faith in something that's not going to really last? 
Well, you really can't tell the answer to that question by looking at us. In fact, we don't really even know. We look inside of us and we can guess, but we really don't now know how much faith we have and what the quality of that faith is. The only way that you can tell is when the heat is brought to bear, when the heat is turned up, because our hearts are kind of like metal. Under the heat of pressure, the impurities separate, the bonds are broken, and they kind of bubble to the surface. And so this season, the, the coronavirus really has been a collective turning up of the heat in everyone's life. And stuff that, that is deep inside of us is now bubbling to the surface. And it's probably not really that pretty. There's some stuff coming out of us that we maybe had a sense was down there, but maybe not as much as we thought. And things are bubbling to the surface like anger and, and fear and laziness and greed and anxiety. And they're now on display. We used to be able to kind of hide them, but under the pressure, they kind of come to the surface. Now, the reason God allows these things to bubble to the surface is not to embarrass us, not to shame us, not just to make us feel really bad about ourselves, but so that we might change, so that our faith might grow, so that our faith might become more pure. That's the purpose behind it. The last thing that is true of both faith and gold is this. Both need to be proved. It says, may be proved genuine. Years ago, we got a chance to go up to Sutter's Mill in Central California, which is where the gold rush started that really put this uh, state on the map. And they give you a chance to pan for gold in the stream, just like they used to do back then when the gold rush was going on. And as you pan for gold, the, the park rangers and whatnot, they're kind of giving instruction. One of the things they told us is that most of the, of the stuff you think is gold is really not gold. It's iron pyrite. The common word for that is fool's gold. Now, it's called fool's gold because it looks like gold, it shines like gold, but it's worthless. It's iron pyrite. It's, it's not gold. And they told us the quickest way there by the stream to see, to tell whether or not you had real gold or whether you had fool's gold was to take a hammer and to hit the gold. Because if it's fool's gold, it would disintegrate into dust. But if it's real gold and you put the pressure of a hammer on it, it just flattens out. The other way, of course, to test to see whether it's fool's gold or real gold is to put a flame to it. You put heat to fool's gold and sulfur begins to burn off of it. Immediately, the smell will let you know this is not real gold. You put heat to real gold and there's no sulfur smell at all. So it's in the pounding and it's in the heating that you find out the internal quality of the substance. On the outside, it looks the same. It looks like gold. It shines, has the same color but it's not. And it's the same with our faith. It's as the temperature of life goes up, it's as the pressure mounts, that what's on the inside is really shown and we are tested and what is true of us is revealed. Now, it's one thing to be fooled about gold, but it will be an unrecoverable and eternal loss to be fooled about our faith. And we think oftentimes that this life is about what we can see on the surface. But this life is really all about getting at and growing what's on the inside of us, which is our faith in God. That's what's going to last. That's what will prove to be valuable in the end. But to get at the gold, the tunnels of pain and pressure have to be dug. But the faith is worth the pressure. It's worth the pain. 
Because it says the result here is praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, we read these three words, and we maybe have a feeling and think, well, that that sounds nice. But it's really important to stop and think, what do these words mean? The word praise means to, to be approved or commended. The word glory means to count for something in such a way that people turn their heads in recognition of how important what you've accomplished is. Honor means to establish the worth of something, literally means the weight or the heaviness and the importance of something that you've done. And when you think about it, these three, praise, glory, and honor, that's what everyone is striving for in this life. Everybody wants praise. They they want to be approved of, to be commended for what they're doing. Everybody wants to count for something, to turn heads in such a way that recognizes what you're doing really matters. And everybody wants to know that what they're investing their life in has weight to it, has importance to it, it it has worth to it. But in this world, these three are fleeting and temporary at best. You know, you, you gain the approval or the commendation from people for a little while, and then they turn on you. You count for something, and people turn their heads, and then you need to do something else because people turn their heads away. And it feels like for a moment that what you've done really has weight to it, and then it kind of falls apart, and you begin to wonder if it really matters at all. What's being said in the end of this verse is that Jesus Christ is the one who's going to deliver all three of these, praise, glory, and honor. Not now, but when he wraps up history, when he is revealed. And that, that is the big decision that we all face every day of our life. Will we go for what shines like gold here And be, honestly, pretty much like everybody else. Or will we pursue faith and be very different? A couple of ideas for you as we wrap up this week. First of all, I would encourage you to go ahead and and take some time this week to read through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be taking the next couple of months to work our way through this book. It's only five chapters long. So I would encourage you to take the time, sit down this week, and read through these five chapters and begin to get a feel for what this book is saying. The second recommendation I would have for you is to ask this very important question of yourself. What have you learned about the condition of your faith in this season? Is there one word that comes to mind? Something that you've seen about your faith? Because whatever that is, that's probably God saying, all right, this is the project of change right now for you. Now, if you're really courageous, ask someone that you know really well for input. What, what have they seen in your life? If you really want to take a risk and you're married, ask your spouse what they've seen in your life through this season. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the living hope of change that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ, the new kind of life on the inside that gives us access to the inheritance of heaven that gives us a real hope of change in the middle of all of our failed attempts of change. And we thank you for the hard. We, we never enjoy it. We wish it would um, end sooner than it normally does or not occur when it does. But we recognize that it is our faith, both the quality of it and the quantity of it, that will really matter in the end. And so we thank you for the hard stuff that you've brought to us. And even in this season of difficulty and change, we thank you for this opportunity. And instead of just waiting for things to get back to normal, I pray that you'd help us to mine 
out of this time in our life, the goal that you are getting at, the faith that you're wanting to grow. And as we look through the rest of this book about how to be different, I pray that you would change us. You would give us insight, particularly into what kind of change you want us to be working on. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.